Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Alack, why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned? I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my knee. Give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission. Yet I well remember the favours of these men. Were they not mine? Did they not sometime cry, all hail to me? So Judas did to Christ, but he in twelve found truth in all but one. I in twelve thousand, none. God save the king. Will no man say, Amen? Hello and welcome to the plays the thing. You have arrived at the Richard the Second Q and A episode. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. The audio you just heard is Richard Pasco playing King Richard in the Royal Shakespeare Company's performance of Richard II. Richard, no longer king, has been summoned by the new king of England, and Richard is complaining alack. Why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherewith I reigned? And we're going to use that audio for a specific purpose because one of our listeners asked a question, asked us to kind of do a line-by-line reading from something in Act 4, and we're going to use that monologue. But let's talk about that a little bit later, Heidi. Heidi, uh, I just want to say before we dive into these questions, you showed up for this show a devout follower of Richard II. You loved this play. I was a little bit less experienced with this play, but over the course of our discussion and kind of, you know, preparing for the show and reading the play, I fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with it. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so, so glad to hear that. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm just such a huge advocate for this play and for the history plays in general. Totally see why. And I love the subtlety and the, I love having to dig into the character's motivations, which is you really have to do that to get anything out of the history plays or many of the history plays. Absolutely. We will be doing... Uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, a little bit later this year. So that's another one of the history plays that will be coming up. So listeners, pay attention for that. Um, I don't know that Richard II has supplanted Coriolanus in my pecking order for like most underrated Shakespeare plays, but I think it's safely ensconced in position number two. Coriolanus is the most underrated Shakespeare play. I think Richard II is the second most underrated Shakespeare play. I think that's a fair fair assessment. Absolutely. Good. That's good. Uh, I just want to tell people that if you are following Close Reads, which Heidi and I and David Kern are on Close Reads, which is kind of like the mothership podcast in which we discuss contemporary and classic novels. We are, we just 
past the halfway mark of Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. And we, we, I made a mistake in preparation for the show. I only read uh, through chapter 18 and we were supposed to read through chapter 19 and chapter 19 is a big reveal. It's the moment that we kind of like discover this mystery. So David and Heidi, partly to my chagrin and partly to my um, great. enthusiasm, revealed the reveal to me on the air. So if you have any homework. interest in, I didn't do my homework. And, and I think <laughs> it's the one time I said on the air, it's the one of the time in my life of not doing homework that it actually It was an honest mistake. Off. It wasn't it was that mistake. you just failed to do it. You just didn't right. know that we were supposed to go through chapter 19. But it worked I, out great. It was it so worked out fun great. to reveal it, it on really the air. It was really fun. So if you're um, not yet a fan of close reads, this is a great opportunity for you to check out what we're doing over there. And of course, you can participate with us and with this show on the Close Reads discussion page on Facebook. Okay, now, Heidi, without further ado, let's jump into some of these questions. Again, I want to say our listeners, with each passing episode, I am more impressed by our listeners dexterity with literary questions, their knowledge of Shakespeare, and the questions we got for this episode are like in keeping with the kind of like the steady rise of acumen and ability from our listeners. So there's the compliment. Let's start with um, a question from Alex Johnston. Alex writes, your view of Richard through the prism of the man-king dichotomy has been so very illuminating. It, it's a great question. Which job, Heidi, in the modern world do you think Richard would be best suited for? I've given this question a lot of thought. I think it's a great question. And I have probably one big answer, and that is he should definitely be some kind of like internet blogger for sure. <laughs> That, that why an internet blog? Because he's super smart, like a like a pundit of some kind, some kind of like successful, maybe like small or like a small publisher, maybe some huh. kind of like dissenting voice. To he needs a battle to fight. This Richard does right because he and he needs a way to express his rich inner life. Yeah, <laughs> that's my very charitable way of talking about his self-obsessive melancholy um, is his, you know, rich inner life. So he has a rich inner life. He needs a voice for that. He's an incredible wordsmith and poet, mm. but I'm not sure that he could be a great poet in the, in the sense of you actually have to work really hard and be kind of an ambitious person to right. be successful. Right. In and that, so I think like small publishing, maybe he could be some kind of um, reviewer. Like do, I could see him doing like ironic reviews of pop culture shows and stuff like that. <laughs> Your answer went toward the direction of Richard as poet. Yes. My answer went toward the direction of Richard as King. Oh, and so I'm thinking Go on. which, which kind of modern occupation holds the most power. The simple answer would be a president, um, yeah, you know, a tyrant, a dictator of some he sort. He couldn't make but it. I, I, he collapse. Well, and he does in the play. He uh -huh. just, you know, his own inability or sloth is what, you know, is his major undoing. So I was thinking, that's a little bit too on the nose to say, oh, he'd be the president of the United States, the most powerful country in the world. What if instead, because I think this is the direction that our world is going, um, major corporations in some ways have as much, if not more power than the United States. That's an exaggeration, but I mean, that's just one of the concerns is that we have major international corporations that are not governed by any singular national, um, you know, bureaucracy or elected officials. And so you have Apple, which is a multinational organization, um, Microsoft and multinational organization, Amazon, Google, et cetera, et cetera. And the threat of unbridled power there, I think, is something that is that. Richard struggles with in the early part of the play until there's this kind of realization, this wonderful realization that he's a man. 
He's not just a king. He's not just his occupation. He's not just his position, but he's a man like his servants and his soldiers. So I tend to say something like he is the CEO, maybe without a governing board of a major uh, tech corporation, a major, major tech corporation. So maybe Jeff Bezos, somebody like this. That's, That's my thought. If we two could marry different directions in that two different answer. directions. And if we could have Jeff Bezos as emo poet, we might have our Richard II, our contemporary Richard II. Maybe so. Next question, which is a comment from Mary Cummings, one of our favorite listeners. Tim, maybe right here you could assure me that it will be safe to listen to what you've already said on the Richard's speech in Act 4. I think it's one of the most beautiful speeches of Shakespeare, incredibly heartbreaking. Please tell me you have compassion for him, at least in this small part. So Mary hasn't read it. I hope that I have conveyed throughout these podcasts that I have great sympathy for Richard II. I get frustrated with him. I want to be like, hey, get up off your duff and do your job. You've got thousands, maybe millions of people counting on you to do your job. Like get up and do it well. Like walk into your office, you know, as whatever, God's representative in England and do well. So I get frustrated with him in that. But man, those moments where he, especially the act three speech, um, when he recognizes, I eat food just like you. Where, where do you call me a king? I have great sympathy for him. And I have great sympathy for him when he um, speaks to Bolingbroke, his new king, and has to acknowledge him as the king and say, God save the king. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's terribly difficult for him. He kind of got himself in that position, Mary. I want to admit that. But yes, I, yes, 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 yes. I have great sympathy. And Heidi, you have sympathy for him. I do. I absolutely do. That doesn't mean I think he's a good king. I don't. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, uh, I am on the fence always on, in this play on whether he deserved what he got. Some yeah. of me says yes. Some of me says no. Either way, I have a very deep compassion for Richard the man mm. and for Richard the king and for the division within his soul and the dissonance within his soul. I have great compassion on that. And I have, as you know, a underlying uh, affection and inclination toward the divine right of Kings. So, right. Right. One that's, I'm, you know, I'm not there with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Which that's, that's a good thing because this does not need to be the medieval worldview podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We need a good modern on here. As it is. yeah. Yeah. Um, Two comments. Well, a comment and a question. Megan Akoa says, uh, since jumping on the thread, I'm not really caught up, but a big discussion point for this play in my class was whether or not we ought to have sympathy or pity for Richard II. Um, So we've been talking about this already. I think that if you're teaching this book, I think this is, and Heidi, you've taught this book much more. I've never taught this book in a classroom setting, Um, but I think this might be the key that unlocks the play for students and discussions. Should we have sympathy or pity for Richard? I just think it's really ripe. So if you are mm-hmm. teaching Richard II, I encourage you, Heidi and I both encourage you to go in that direction. Um, Sally Webb Eilerson has a comment and a question um, about Richard not really separating himself from his role as king, which is, of course, this dominant theme that that you and I talked about during the podcast, Heidi. She says, he became king at 10. He doesn't know himself except as a king. And at age 10, king was a role to play. He had no power. His uncles did everything. He was a pampered toy. Who knows when he was actually allowed to assume the kingship, to become an adult? I wonder if he was ever truly allowed to become a person separate from the title. Heidi, what do you think about Sally's question? I I think that that's, I think it's a really insightful comment. And I think she's getting to the heart of one of the questions of the play. I think once we are asking questions like that and mulling things over, we're really at at the heart of Richard II. Um, As far as the historical context for this, this is, she's absolutely right. He was 
pampered um, and protected and uh, overshadowed by his powerful uncles um, and used as a figurehead rather than as a true king. And he always, all, all child kings and all child rulers, of course, have just a completely unique life. There is, I mean, the closest thing in our culture that even comes remotely close to that is the idea of like some kind of child star uh, that doesn't get a real yeah. childhood, that yeah. is always in the limelight, that has to act like a tiny adult, but still be adorable. And, you know, all these kinds of things that, and is expected to have talent and stamina of an adult at the age of six or seven or whatever. Um, and those people tend to be troubled as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not always true across the board, but we've seen it many, many times. And that's certainly true true uh, in spades, like on an even grander scale, if we're talking about the king of an entire powerful empire and country in, in medieval Europe. So certainly there's no question that the, that the fact that he was a child king defined his entire life and his self-identity. And I think what Shakespeare does with this is really brilliant because he makes him, we have no evidence from the historical record what Richard's personality was. We don't know. Mm. Shakespeare took this raw material and he turned him into this very compelling person as well as a very tormented king, right? Both, right. He, he takes him and he makes Richard into a very strong personality, uh, talented at something, wordsmithing, but not kingship. And so he gives us both, the, and he gives us the juxtaposition of both according to his own imagination of what this person might have been like in real life. Uh, but I think Sally's comment is really insightful and true. Yeah, I think it is too. I think it is too. I, and I think uh, to go back to the question of if you're teaching this in class, that's probably something that your students are going to miss because it doesn't occur on stage. Let me be clear. That is an unclear antecedent. By that, I mean um, Richard II's kind of, he, he grew up as a king. He was anointed at age 10. That's going to be a hard thing for your students to identify with. You know, they, they are used to presidents running or, or, or people running in relatively old age to become president they're not coddled from a very young age unless they were born into like extreme wealth like Richard II was. So when you're asking the question of your students, should we have sympathy? Should we have pity? If they say no, that might be a good thing to remind them like, hey, you might be this way if you had just been, if you had just grown up with this mantle on you and extreme wealth from a very early age, you might be like Richard II yourself. Tracy Hence Leary says, I would love to hear Heidi evaluate the change in Richard's fatal flaw in terms of his duty versus his desire. If Richard will so easily give up the crown, what is it that he really wants? Heidi, before you answer that question, I just want to kind of, for for new listeners, Heidi, I think, has this really instructive way of thinking about... um, literature. And Heidi, make sure I get this right. Clarify it if I don't do it well. Um, Heidi says that kind of, you know, when, when we're looking at protagonists or even antagonists in literature, it's really helpful to kind of like look at this dichotomy between what is it that they desire? I desire to be the king. I desire to be rich, what have you. Um, and what do they feel duty bound to perform? What roles were they born into or have they arrived at? Husband, wife, king, queen, princess, like what are the duties associated with those roles? And so many characters that we really love from Hamlet to Macbeth to Richard II are torn between these two things, duty to do the right thing, duty to execute one's office and desire, desire to be, maybe in Richard's the, the case, um, to be a great poet, to be an adored king. He desires these things, but he also feels this kind of like, he, he has a duty that he ought to fulfill. With that is the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said that well. 
I think most of our human life is a conflict, right? Most of the choices that we make comes down to the conflict between what we want to do and what we ought to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's played out in every story in the whole world. Um, And sometimes it's the main theme of the story. And sometimes it's just kind of there lurking in the background or undergirding kind of shooting through it. Um, I think that that's a big part of Richard here. Uh, I loved this question. Thank you so much for asking it, Tracy. Um, I, I, I think with Richard, what he ought to do is to be a good king. That's what he ought to do which means he needs to think of the people. He needs to Mm -hmm. think of the nobles. He needs Mm -hmm. to think of the politics. He needs to think beyond himself and his own desires. However, I think what he wants to do is just do what he wants. I I really think it's as simple as that. He wants to, he, in his mind, because he is the king, he can do whatever he wants. And when he is faced with obstacles, for example, actually having to rule the people and, uh, and make sure that they are provided for, he just does nothing. He abdicates that responsibility because it's hard and it takes work and he's thoughtful. And when he encounters political obstacles from his nobles, he banishes them. He shunts them aside. He turns it into an opportunity for him to put on a show like he does in, in act one with the jousting taken as an opportunity to banish uh, his two right. Uh, nobles. Right. So, it's, it's a pretty straightforward conflict for Richard. He just thinks, he thinks like a spoiled child, right? Like I've got all the money, I've got all the power. I'm just going to do what I want. And if you get in my way, I'm going to get rid of you or I'm going to not think about you. That is in conflict with the duties of kingship. Yeah. And it is because of that that he ends up losing the throne. And he's given multiple opportunities to repent of that sloth, that's spiritual terms, uh, or to, in practical terms, actually get up and perform as a king and he just turns him down so he just never does his duty he just always does right even at the end like there's not ever a point in which richard really repents of his sloth um like he he has all this melancholy and sadness and beautiful speeches and all that stuff that we've talked about but there's not really a moment when he's like i did this to myself because i was a bad king okay i'm going to use this to transition Heidi, hang on one sec. Of course, like right when we start podcasting, our neighbors decide, you know what? It's now a great would be a time, great to time for us to, yeah, let's do some loud It's like yard they don't work. even know our schedule. I know. They don't even know our schedule. Do they not care about us? I'm feeling very like Richard II right now. I'm going to yep. quote That's some right. poetry I wanna about- I want to do what I want. Yep. Yeah. I want to do what I want. And what I want to do is I want to podcast <laughs> without those blowers in the background. Hang right. on one sec. Let me see where yes. they are. Okay, it sounds like the immediate threat has been diverted to a different part of the yard. So I think we're safe. I, can I go on a like a rambling discourse about the nature of suburban life and like leaf blowers? You should blowers? write a play about it. I have made notes about a play about this because I found myself becoming such a grouch about. I mean, <laughs> in the fall. Georgia is beautiful. It's leafy. And, and so in the fall, when we lose the, the trees, lose their leaves, you know, there's a big pile up in people's yards. Okay. So I would be working out on the porch at my parents' house and inevitably at about 10 o'clock, they would start up like, a, like a, a fleet of race cars around the neighborhood. And it drove me insane. I could, That's it just so drove funny, me Tim. crazy. And now I, I think see we're you like, out there with like your pitchfork. Like yeah, I know. Just being it. like the guy, get off my lawn, That's you right. kids. And like the people that are actually <laughs> doing the lawn blowing are like 20 years my senior. Yeah, but I think we're re entering that time. I think because it's spring, the leaf blowers are resurrecting from the winter. And I'm just going to have to. I'm just going to have to learn. I'm going to have to tolerate. Okay. All of that was a very poor segue into another question that, or, or, or a wish from Tracy Hence Leary. She says, you guys mentioned in act four as a good one to do a line by line study on. I would love to hear that modeled at least in part. The monologue we heard at the top of the show is from act four, scene one. Let, let's just try this right now, Heidi. Let's just do this as an experiment in what I'm going to call micro exegesis, a close reading. And I actually want us to kind of wear two different 
hats as we discuss these lines. The two different hats are going to be, I'm going to go first, Heidi, and I'm going to read this as someone who is either directing this play or is preparing to perform Richard II. So one of the convictions of this show is that Shakespeare plays as when they when they're in an educational setting, they've kind of become literary devices. And so we ask our students to, you know, explore themes and motifs and foreshadowing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the performative aspect of Shakespeare's plays, which is for me, just the vital approach to Shakespeare. He wrote plays to be performed by actors, you know, and I, and I think, and it's really important for me to help students, you know, even adult students understand that first of all, this is a performed text. This is not primarily a tool, a text that people can read, um, can use their literary criticism background for. Of course, the literary criticism background is can be tremendously instructive, but it can also be a little bit boring if you don't remember. These are like staged words with like, you know, embodied actors breathing and sneezing and crying up on stage. Okay, so I'm gonna first read these lines as if I'm preparing for a performance. And then Heidi, I would like for you to discuss these same lines from a literary critic's point of view. Like what are the sorts of things that you're looking for here that might be fun to explore for a student in a classroom? Richard has just been summoned to Bolingbroke's court. Bolingbroke is now, uh, he's either king or he's about to be king. Richard has been deposed. He's been defeated in battle. He's been deposed. He's no longer in king. So if I'm preparing to be Richard, I come onto the stage. And my first question is, what is my stance toward the new king going to be? Here's his opening line. Alack, why am I sent for to a king before I have shook off the real thoughts wherewith I reigned? I hardly have yet learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my limbs, give sorrow leave, a while to tutor me to this submission. Okay. I read that as uh, frustration manifesting itself in sarcasm or, or maybe, um, maybe not sarcasm, but maybe something like um, just frustration. You know, I've been deposed I'm used to doing whatever I want to do because it's the king. Alas, why am I sent for before I have shook off the regal thoughts wherein I reigned? I'm still kind of like figuring out what it feels like to not be a king anymore. I've hardly, I have hardly, I have yet, <laughs> I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, and bend my limbs. Is that kind of a, um, Maybe that's a shout out to his former men who spent a lot of time flattering him and very little time preparing him for the duty of being a king. Are they maybe, is there one of them in the room that I could say that line to? Like you who betrayed me, who flattered me while I was king. If I, if I, if there was someone in the room who I thought was guilty of flattering me, that line would be delivered to that servant, to that um, former supporter. Give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission. Yet I well remember the favors of these men. Were they not mine? Oh, okay. They are. These guys were like, I, I'm in a room with people who used to flatter me and serve me. Um, were they not mine? Did they not sometimes cry all hail to me? So Judas did to Christ, but he in 12 found truth in all but one. I in 12,000, none. That's a great line. Mm -hmm. So now I think if I'm performing Richard II, this is chiefly about my frustration with my betrayers, who I perceive to be my betrayers. So when I walk onto the stage now, I think my job my task, my, my motive to use that cliche is 
to basically get some, to give a tongue lashing to the people who I perceive to have betrayed me. They weren't really faithful to me when I was king. And when they saw the opportunity to jump into someone, another king's lap, they took that opportunity. And this might be my last chance to tell them what I really think about him. So Judas did to Christ, but he in 12 found truth in all but one, I in 12,000, none. I found I, have, I had no truth in all of these supporters. There was no truth in any of them. God save the king. Will no man say, say amen? Okay, so this last line, this might be a little bit of a turn for me. And then Heidi, I'm going to come to you. Um, God save the king. Will no man say amen? So I can imagine that as a continuation of the thought that he's been developing, or it's a turn and he's saying, you know, with some venom to Bolingbroke, God save the king. But no one echoes him. And so I use the opportunity now to kind of like stick the knife in Bolingbroke a little bit. Will no man say amen? You know, like nobody, nobody raised their voice and said, God save the king like I just did. So maybe that's an opportunity to say, hey, Bolingbroke, they did to me what they're going to do to you. Okay, Heidi, from a literary critics, I think what's, what's different? What sort of things do you want to explore in this text? Let me repeat back to you here. You're thinking as a mm-hmm. performer, how would I perform mm-hmm. this? What emotions and and what meaning would I give? Like, how right. would I add weight to this line over this line? How would I, uh, What what is Richard feeling? Is he being sarcastic? Is he being sorrowful? Is this something he's planned to say and he's making a big production out of it? Or is he like honestly processing this in the exact moment because he's so overwhelmed by it? Those kinds of questions, I think, for complex and very emotionally weighty speech, Mm. as you've said, as you've gone line by line, that's like really powerful. And of course, contributes then to the literary meaning they're tied together, but they're not exactly the same. Because reading this, I'm immediately drawn to the comparison that he is making between himself and Jesus Christ. Um, On a literary level, there's a couple of different, again, with Shakespeare, there's a couple of, there's always multiple ways of interpreting something, particularly in the history plays. Um, So, you can look at this comparison that he makes. Um, Did they not sometime cry, all hail to me? So, Judas did to Christ, but he in 12 found truth in all but one, I in 12,000 none, right? So, he's he is drawing a clear parallel between himself and Christ, who is, of course, the king, right? So, we have two two different kinds of kingship, but also he was betrayed by people he trusted. That's another, that's another level of comparison between the two. But, for us as readers and as as audience members, we can interpret this speech in a couple of different ways too. Um, we can interpret this as him being like blasphemous. How mm. dare you compare yourself? You're a bad king. You're being Mm-mm. deposed because you failed. How dare you compare yourself to Christ? Right? It shows his hubris. It shows his overreaching. It shows his utter lack of understanding of why he's there in the room in the moment. Right? To compare himself to Christ uh, being betrayed by Judas when he has lost the crown because of his own failure to rule is an an act of supreme arrogance that shows his complete lack of repentance in this moment and his self-obsession and melancholy, right? Or on the other hand, divine right of kings. How exactly. dare these people exactly. depose him? Yeah. Like, no matter what kind of king he is, he belongs on that throne because he has been ordained by God to be there. And how dare he be removed? This is an act of blasphemy on the part mm. of the betrayers who are mm. now doomed to lose their souls and the land because of this action towards this king. So, the comparison to Christ is where I'm immediately drawn on a literary level here. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Continuing that thought, a question from Katie. Forgive me, Katie, your last name, Behrens. Her question is, is the messianic slash Jesus connection between Richard's character baked into the play or is it added by the actors and directors? I know how you mentioned how he rides in on a donkey, but how overt is it? The Tenet, the David Tenet production and Wishaw productions seem to really lean into it. And Hollow since Crown that's the too. case, 
Oh, does it really? Yeah, really. Interesting. Yeah, intensely. The Holocron um, also focuses on uh, Richard as potentially homosexual. That's another uh-huh. big kind of, which we haven't talked much about the uh, in, because it's such a minor part, even it is in Shakespeare, but it's so minor. Right. Um, and so his very heavily contextualized historically um, that there's uh, that it just hasn't been a part of the conversations between the two of us. I'd be happy to answer that question if someone wants to know yeah. and wants to email me about it or send me a Facebook message or whatever. But that's a big part of Hollow Crown. But yes, the it is in the play. It is in the play in multiple parts. It's more in the play in the second half of the play. Once we get to mm. the betrayal um, in the beginning of the play. Uh, and throughout the play, another comparison that's used is, is the up and down comparison, the, the, the image of the scales as Bolingbroke rises, Richard falls. Uh, Richard is shown in the first half of the play being at the top um, of the scale and then kind of slowly sinking down as Bolingbroke rises. Uh, another core central image uh, to the language of the play is the, uh, is the sun rising and setting, kind of rising on Richard and then setting on Richard um, and uh that, so sun imagery is a really big deal in this play. Uh, and then also the the question of Christ. And the question of Christ, it is not that Shakespeare compares Richard to Christ. It is that the idea of a rightful king and the blasphemy, is the blasphemy on the part of Richard or is it on the part of his betrayers? So Shakespeare's doesn't take a side here. And we can see that in this speech and in other references to Richard as uh, as Jesus being betrayed. Heidi, I love that response. And I'm, I'm thinking about how Shakespeare so frequently can be read in these two different ways. He sets kind of themes opposing each other. And one of the big themes that we discussed in the play, of course, that we've been talking about here is um, Richard is born into a world where the divine right of kings is taken for granted. It is a an established motif of rule for English kings and queens. And, oh, you have a visitor. Um, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. So there's this question in the play when he's deposed, is Bolingbroke doing wrong? Is, is he doing a divine injustice because he's deposing a king that was appointed, appointed there by God. And you can read it either way. You can read Bolingbroke as a kind of a usurper to a divine right, or you can read Bolingbroke as deposing a man who was not fit for the throne and was doing tremendous damage. Exactly. A side note, um, this week I interviewed James Shapiro for the podcast James Shapiro wrote a book called Shakespeare in a Divided America, and it's up for the National Book of the Year Award. And he's a huge Shakespeare scholar. Like, I think probably top one of the top three or four in the U.S. And I said, Jim, he insisted I call him Jim. Jim, is Shakespeare an equivocator? Does he say, because he, does he speak it of both sides of his mouth? And his response, I'm actually not going to give his response. It was really thoughtful. I, I really, I'm going to withhold the response as kind of a teaser because I think the interview was so good and I want um, listeners to go check it out. So that question that you and I kind of come upon very frequently, is Shakespeare an equivocator? I thought that James Shapiro had a really excellent answer. Okay, our next um, question is by Renee Tamathini. And it's more of a comment about um, um, Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe, as a rival to Shakespeare and his production of um, Edward II. I'm going to read parts of Renee's. I, I thought her comment was really insightful. I am so ignorant about Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. I'm going to have very little to say in response. Heidi, I'm going to wait and hear if you know much about Marlowe's Edward II. So Renee watched Marlowe's Edward II, um, and she's, she was really struck with the similarities between Edward II and Richard II. Both have weak, self-indulgent, slothful kings whose nobles rebel. They have similar complaints against their kings. Both the kings abdicate and are murdered, um, and both deal with questions about the divine right of kings. Um, and both kings kind of end up as these tragic figures. And, and she points out that even 
some of the lines in Richard II are echoing lines from Marlowe's play. And she says, I think that Marlowe was the only playwright of their time, of that time that Shakespeare continually alluded to or quoted. I'd love to hear your take on the idea that Richard II was his response to Edward II, was Shakespeare's response to Edward II, or that he modeled his play after Marlowe's. I really don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare's known, this is one of those that I could have found out the answer probably from a simple Google search and kind of meant to and just forgot to look it up. Uh, I do know that Marlowe and Shakespeare were rivals. I also know that Shakespeare, that there was no sense of like protectiveness over plots in Mm -hmm. Renaissance England. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of like copyright infringement and all that kind of stuff was like, light years in the future and not even on anybody's mind. Uh, Shakespeare pretty much stole all of his plots from other sources. Um, And when I say stole, I use that word like very ironically, like he Mm. took, he, he was that everybody did. Everybody did. Um, There was, there was, it wasn't that Shakespeare was like the one guy who did this. It was just, you get, you get plots and you get plots from other sources and you write a play about it. Like that's the way, that's what you do. So none of that would, surprised me at all. I also know that the Renaissance mind and the late medieval mind was uh, was very f- entangled with these questions of kingship and leadership. There was no other way to rule. That you, you had the divine right of kings, although that, again, that was a statement not even used until King James's reign, but the idea, it's, it's an anachronistic statement, but the idea, it's, a, it's so descriptive of the way they thought about it, right? Yeah. Um, that we use it to describe that whole period. Um, so there's none of that would surprise me, but it would not have been anything scandalous. Nobody would have looked askance at that. Probably not even Marlowe. They would have just been right. in like a, a feud, maybe a personal feud to like write the better play about that, that, that story. Um, another question from Tracy Hence Leary. I, and I'm going to combine two of her questions together. I would love to hear more about the idea of the mirror of Kings and its literary precedence. And in what specific ways are Bolingbroke and Richard mirrors of each other? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take the, the mirrors for mm-hmm. King's idea mm-hmm. um, first here. So the mirror for Kings or the mirror for princes is what it's most commonly called. It's a very specialized kind of literary study. Most, it, it's really hard to find uh, information on this in like the popular realm. You have to kind of, go into the really specialized aspect of literary history. Uh, It's an educational literary genre uh, from, it has roots in ancient and classical literature, but it kind of enjoyed a period of great popularity in the Middle Ages Hmm. um, into the Renaissance. Uh, And what it was is kind of a list of textbooks, really, which tell kings how to rule in like very lofty kind of poetic uh, language. Um, so, these this would be part of how a prince was educated to the throne. They would read these Mirror of Kings kind of literature. Like I said, it has roots in ancient tradition, um, Greek and Roman tradition, like Xenophon wrote uh a mirror for princes, Isocrates, Seneca, Cicero, and Latin. Uh, so just like treatises on what it means to be a king. Uh, and we also ha- have some evidence in the Bible that Proverbs was written as mm-hmm. a mirror for king's text. Um, and the, the idea of like what it means to be a ruler, you know, my son gather, come and sit at my knee and I will tell you what it means to be a king and what it means to be a man, right? Um, that, that, that kind of language is used in, in ancient Mesopotamian literature as well. But it was revived in the Middle Ages as a way to educate a young prince to the kingship. And it's like lists of wisdom. And, um, and the idea was like the, the prince would gaze into it. And of course, the Middle Ages was like the, the high point of this idea that we all still in classical education are trying to revive today, which is you become what you behold. So mm-hmm. that's why it was called a mirror. So if the prince would read these things and be taught these things by a tutor, uh, then he would become what he was beholding in these treatises and in these texts. Um, and then that was why it was referred to as a mirror. 
Say that last part again. Why was it referred to as a mirror? Because the prince would read them over and over again and gaze into them. And then he, his face or he you know, his countenance, and, he yeah. would become this thing that he was beholding. And so in, in some ways, this this instead of getting a comprehensive classical education, some kings really just didn't. They would just read these kinds of things. Interesting. Um, and uh, so people were kind of adding to, it was a rich literary tradition of its own day, but of course, highly specialized. And the manuscripts are really at this point only studied by specialists. That really casts a different kind of um, light on the moment where Richard steps on yes, the stage and he's looking and he asks for a looking glass and, and he looks can at see himself. himself. Yeah. Instead yeah. of at the ideal, he is not looking at a mirror for princes. He's looking at a mirror for himself, which again, according to Shakespeare, is it because he's fine? Like, there's two interpretations, right? Is he just knowing right. himself for the first time or has he rejected this wisdom and is like a narcissist, is, is right. literally right. like narcissist, dying and drowning in his own image? Wow. Well, I really want to go back now and it's so profound. Contemplate it? that it's so profound. Shakespeare, man, he, he gets me every How does time. He do it? How did Shakespeare every time. happen? How did he happen? Yeah, how did he happen? Um, Heidi, I'm going to end with a comment from Sally Webb Eilerson, also one of our great listeners, a consistently great listener. She writes, not really a question, just a comment. The parting scene between Richard and his queen is one of the most romantic scenes in Shakespeare. It's not real. The queen was a child, but I love this scene. The phrase, so too, that's T-W-O, so too, together weeping, make one woe. It's a beautiful expression of shared grief. And um, I want to sign out, Heidi, with just playing some of that audio of that uh, scene from, I believe it's act five between Richard and his queen as they, as they part. But before we do that, I want to thank you again for being on the show. I want to remind everyone that the best way to get a hold of us is through the Close Reads Facebook discussion page. There's all sorts of, first, fun, fascinating people. I think that's the, the reason I keep going back to uh, the Facebook pages because like, this is just my tribe. I love Delightful. hearing from people. Delightful people. Um, we hear all sorts of comments and questions about, you know, education in the classical mode, about everything else from menu items to movies that are really enriching and compelling. So I encourage you, if you've not yet gotten on the discussion page, Go to the Close Reads discussion page and say hello to Heidi and I. We try to pay attention and to comment when people shout out to us. Um, we have begun recording Rich, excuse me, we just finished Richard II. We have begun <laughs> recording Heidi, myself, and, <laughs> and Sarah Jane Bentley, Romeo and Juliet, one of the real granddaddies, not just from Shakespeare, but of the world stage. Mm -hmm. um, and we're doing it in preparation for PBS releasing a national theater production of Romeo and Juliet. And PBS is going to release that. I believe it's on April the 23rd. Well, I'll, I'll double check that next time before we do um, Romeo and Juliet. So we're kind of thinking that the podcast will culminate with this production of Romeo and Juliet that hopefully, you know, a lot of our listeners can participate together. And we might even do a Q&A after that production so that we can talk not just about Romeo and Juliet, but about this particular production on by the National Theater. So be looking for that. Also be looking for uh, the James Shapiro interview that I did. It should be coming out shortly after this Q&A on Richard II. It's fascinating. His book, I strongly encourage you to find a copy of his book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. It's up for the National Book Award for good reason. It's really insightful. It's really powerful. The thesis just is Shakespeare is kind of common ground in the United States. Everyone loves Shakespeare from presidents to soldiers, from liberals to conservative. But the other part of his thesis is Shakespeare is also this kind of battleground. It's the place where um, 
fighting factions kind of try to make their case to the other faction, no, we're right. Look, Shakespeare supports us. And then the other side, no, we're right. Shakespeare supports us. One of that, sorry, I'm going on and on, but I just, it was such a fun interview. Heidi, he talks about um, both Lincoln and his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, were huge Shakespeare fans. Um, but of course they saw radically different agendas within Shakespeare. And so I asked, uh, Dr. Shapiro, Hey, if they're literary, imagine Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth as literary critics, how are they different as literary critics? And I think that's a, an answer that's well worth listening to. Good. That's great. Heidi, thanks again for being on the show. Looking forward to Romeo and Juliet. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. And to everyone else, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being part. Thanks for those of you who sent questions. And we wish you, as always, happy reading. Then whither he goes, thither let me go. So two together weeping make one woe. Weep thou for me in France, I for thee here. That are far off the near, be near the near. Go, count thy way with sighs. I mine with groans. So longest way shall have the longest moans. Twice for one step I'll groan, the way being short, and piece the way out with a heavy heart. Come, come, in wooing sorrow let's be brief, since wedding it there is such length in grief. One kiss shall stop our mouths and dumbly part. Thus give I mine. And thus take I thy heart. Give me mine own again. T'were no good part to take on me to keep and kill thy heart. So, now I have mine own again. Be gone. That I may strive to kill it with a groan. We make woe wanton with this fond delay. Once more adieu. The rest. Let sorrow say. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.